0: If you would, please turn again in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11, John's Gospel in chapter 11, and I would like to pick up reading where Pastor Lai Chao left off in verse 28, and we'll read verses 28 through 24. Please follow along as I read John chapter 11, verses 28. So the Jews said, "'See how He loved Him.' But some of them said, "'Could not He who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying?' Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, "'Take away the stone.' Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, "'Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days.'" his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let us pray once more together. Let's pray. Our Father, You are the eternal God. You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word and most manifestly in Your Son, the Lord Jesus. We do believe that those who have seen the Son have seen the Father, and now, Lord, help us as we behold the Son here in this passage, in this account, to understand something more of Your heart and Your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It is one thing to ask. And it is often asked, does God ordain suffering and sorrow in the lives of His people? And one might choose to conduct a Bible study to investigate that very question, and of course one would soon find that the biblical answer to that question is yes. You might consider the account of Joseph with his brothers. If you're familiar with that account in Genesis, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. A terrible, sinful act on the part of those men, but we do get this statement at the end of Joseph's narrative, and that is that what, God, excuse me, what Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. The idea is that God had purposes in that. He used that very trial and sorrow in Joseph's life to bring about some greater, a grander purpose. You might consider the life of Job. Job goes through the most intense sorts of trials and sufferings, and all of that is used by God to bring about some larger purpose, uh, namely the writing of that book of Job and revealing certain things about God's heart and God's character. You could consider other things like Paul's thorn in the flesh, which was used to bring about uh, God's strength in Paul's weakness. You could even consider the cross itself a great event of suffering by which salvation is brought to the world. The Bible presents this as a simple fact. God does ordain sorrow in the lives of His people. He ordains suffering and calamity and hardship in the lives of Christians. He ordains death. He ordains cancer. He ordains hurricanes and wildfires and other natural disasters that impact the believer as well as the non-believer. He ordains financial ruin, He ordains economic collapse, He ordains acutely painful providences in the lives of His people. The Bible would have us know that all of these things are part of God's will and part of God's plan, and the fact that they are part of His will is a comforting thought to the Christian, because that's what gives them meaning. That's what gives such providences purpose, that they befall us at the hands of a good and sovereign God. God uses sorrow and suffering in the life of the Christian to bring about His purposes in their lives and in the world. So, does God ordain suffering and sorrow in the lives of His people? The Bible's answer is yes. But it's a different question to ask. What is God's posture toward His people when they suffer from dark providences that He Himself has ordained? What is God's attitude toward His people who suffer in situations created by His sovereign will? You appreciate that this is a different question. This is the question I want to ask in light of the passage before us this morning. What is God's posture, specifically Christ's posture, toward the sorrows of His people that His will ordains, that His will creates? Now, it's important that I say that the primary theme of John 11 is contained in verse 25. It's there that Jesus says that He is the resurrection and the life. That is what is stated to Martha. That is what is proved in the actual raising of Lazarus from the dead. That idea is the main theme of this passage, and it's that theme that we will consider next time, God willing. What I am talking about now, however, is what I would consider a subordinate theme, and that is how are we to understand Christ's attitude toward His people in light of the sorrows which His will creates. It's this subordinate theme that provides the context for the primary theme that we'll consider next week, but this subordinate theme is nonetheless important. In fact, I think to the casual reader of John 11, this theme sort of leaps off the page to us. We're faced in John 11 with something that doesn't seem right, something that doesn't seem consistent. There's a tension that the average reader can detect in the events of John 11. The reader of this chapter is confronted very directly with an apparent contradiction, and it's this apparent contradiction I want us to consider together. So, there are two main headings that I have this morning for this message. The first is this, an apparent contradiction which is put before us in John 11, an apparent contradiction which is put before us in John 11, and then secondly, we'll consider different perspectives on this apparent contradiction, different perspectives on this apparent contradiction. Now, I think I've said this before, Uh, preachers, they read so much, they listen to the sermons, they take in all kinds of material from commentaries, and for most preachers, there's nothing new under the sun. We rarely say anything anything original, but you take in so much material from other sources and you kind of forget where you first read things, where you first heard things. Uh, Well, that's not the case today. In the opening up of this theme from this chapter, I want to acknowledge the debt I owe to a former pastor of mine and a message he preached on this passage several years ago that had a great impact on me. So, please consider with me now, first of all, an apparent contradiction which is put before us in John 11. There are two facts that are presented to us in this chapter that appear appear to be in contradiction to each other. There is the first fact that Christ loves His people and that He is able to do everything necessary to keep them from sorrow. Christ loves His people and He is able to do everything necessary to keep them from sorrow. And then there's this second fact completing the apparent contradiction, and that is Christ's apparent inattention to the needs of His people. Christ's apparent inattention to the needs of His people, His love for them and His power to help them, and yet His apparent inattention to their needs. So, first of all, the first fact, it's clearly stated that the Lord Jesus loved Lazarus and loved His sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 3, so the sisters sent to Him saying, Lord, he whom You love is ill. He whom You love... uh, Apparently, Jesus had a special, intimate, and affectionate relationship with Lazarus. He's he's described as the one who Jesus loved, he whom you loved. This is so much more than just the general love God might have for the world. This is a particular love. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. Lazarus was Jesus' disciple, his companion, and this one whom Jesus so deeply loved was ill. And then, of course, verse 5 says very plainly, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it was not just that Jesus loved them. He certainly loved them. They were precious to Him. They were uh, His sheep. They were His disciples. What's more is that it's made clear a number of times that Jesus had the power to heal Lazarus. Both of the sisters acknowledge, they say the same exact thing, Martha and Mary, Lord, if You had only been here, My brother would not have died. He had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. He surely had the power to heal him, and therefore He had the power to keep them all, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, from the real sorrow and pain that they experienced. He clearly loved them. He clearly has the power to deliver them from sorrow. But now appreciate the second fact that completes this apparent contradiction, and that is Christ's apparent inattention to the needs of His people is apparent in attention to the needs of His people. He loves them. He has the power to help them, but now consider His apparent in attention to their needs. Lazarus is very sick. He's very sick, and when Jesus is sought for help, He in fact does nothing. Jesus purposefully delayed His departure to the place where Lazarus was. He knew what was happening, He wasn't unaware that Lazarus was very sick and that he was about to die. He knew Lazarus was dying. He knew the sister's expectations. He knew the intense mental pain and anguish his delay would cause. He knew Lazarus would experience the actual agony of going through death. He knew the family would experience the emotional pain of losing a loved one, and what's more, losing a loved one precisely because Jesus, of His own will, did not intervene to help. You could hear the sisters, where is Jesus? Why doesn't He come? He said He loved us, He surely has the power to heal, why why doesn't He come? Why is He delaying? Why is He allowing this to befall us? This is the apparent contradiction, the love Christ clearly has for Lazarus and his sisters, along with the power He has to deliver them from sorrow and His apparent unwillingness to help them. Now this apparent contradiction is not unfamiliar to Christians. This apparent contradiction is often on display in the lives of the Lord's people. We have statements of love and care in the Bible, the promise of love and goodwill toward the Lord's people made by the Lord Jesus Himself, and yet the appearance that God is altogether inattentive to our needs and that He is, in fact, inactive. So, for example, you have parents who are dealing with a particularly rebellious child who's outside of Christ and they want that child so badly to be saved and to respond to the gospel and to believe. And they're praying and they're crying out to God and they're seeking to nurture that child and to, to, to love that child. And they're looking to God and they're praying. And it seems the Lord's not doing anything. It seems he's inattentive. It seems he's inactive. And parents in such a situation can find themselves in an apparent contradiction. Lord, we're we're putting in the work, we're seeking to nurture this child, we're praying for them, we're teaching them, instructing them, and yet nothing's happening. You might have a person in an extremely stressful vocational situation, the sort of job situation in which you just feel squeezed and pressured and like you're, you're, you're backed into a corner and you're trying to find some sort of breathing room and space and you're trying to find deliverance from this extremely stressful job situation and you're working hard and you're looking to the Lord and it seems He's forgotten about you. It seems that He's gone dark, as it were. You might be single and you've been praying for a spouse. You've been asking God, Lord, I know Your Word says it's not good for a person to be alone. And, and Your Word says that You delight to give good gifts to Your children, and here I am asking for the good gift of a spouse, and I'm, I'm looking to You, I'm crying out to You, don't You love Me? I know that You love Me. I know You could give Me a spouse if You only would will it to be so. And it appears that God isn't doing anything. God isn't answering your prayers. God is inattentive. God is inactive. I think lots of the Lord's people find themselves in sort of painful, trying situations that only seem to produce more and more pain with each passing day, and you're praying for deliverance, and God seems far off, and He seems altogether inattentive and inactive. We find ourselves at many points throughout our lives in such situations, in the middle of this apparent contradiction. Maybe you haven't experienced this apparent contradiction to the same degree of intensity as Martha and Mary, but you have experienced it nonetheless. God's objective declarations of love to you and His seeming unwillingness to deliver you from suffering and sorrow." Well that is the apparent contradiction that we're presented with in John chapter 11. Now please consider with me different perspectives on this apparent contradiction, different perspectives on this apparent contradiction, and we'll consider three different perspectives. First we'll consider the sisters' perspectives. That is the perspective of Martha and Mary. Then we'll consider the Jews' perspectives, those Jews who are at the funeral looking on. And thirdly, Jesus' perspective, the sisters, the Jews, and Jesus. Consider with me first the sisters' perspective. The perspective of Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, I think is best described as disappointed trust, disappointed trust. Now, they don't respond with unbelief. They don't cease to have faith, but the faith and belief and the trust they have in Jesus is disappointed. They don't respond with unbelief, they don't respond with anger, they don't respond with blasphemy, but rather disappointed trust. I think we see this in Jesus' conversation with Martha, John 11 verse 17 um, through 24. Picking up in verse 17, Jesus we read, Now, when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house." (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died." But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you." Jesus said to her, "'Your brother will rise again.' Martha said to him, "'I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day.'" What do you have here? What do you have here? Lazarus has been dead for four days. The crisis is over. There's no more crisis. Jesus was asked to come. He failed to come. Lazarus has died and now Jesus comes." How painful that fact must have been. They asked Him to come when their need was present. Now the need is gone, Lazarus is dead, and it's only now that Jesus turns up. And what does Martha say in verse 21? "'Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever You ask, God, God will give you. Now, I don't think we should understand Martha there in verse 22 to be saying, but, but now you're here, and, and, and even now I believe that you could just raise Lazarus from the dead. I, I think that, that's actually wrong, that, that doesn't take into account the context. I think what Martha is basically saying is that even now I still believe that had you been here, you could have done it, Jesus. I, I don't doubt your ability. I don't doubt your power. You could have done it. I believe even now that had You come, You could have done it. Why didn't You come? Oh, Lord, where were You? Why? Why did You let us go through all of this? Why didn't You come? We know You could have done something had You only showed up. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to Him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This disappointment apparently did not result in the shipwreck of Martha's faith. She still refers to Jesus as Lord. She still believes in the resurrection of the dead. She reaffirms her faith in Christ as her Lord and that the resurrection is indeed a reality, not doubt, not disbelief, not anger. Instead, disappointed trust. Where were You, Lord? Why did You let us down? And then we have the account of Jesus' conversation with Mary uh, in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, "'The teacher is here and is calling for you.' When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to Him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, "'Lord,' if you had been here, my brother would not have died." She falls at his feet. She doesn't accost him to his face. She falls at his feet. She calls him Lord, and yet she groans and moans and weeps her disappointment. Had you just come, we could have been delivered from all of this sorrow. Jesus, in fact, did nothing. But Martha and Mary did not stop believing. Here Mary falls at his feet. She still calls him Lord. They believed him. They believed in the resurrection. Jesus' inactivity does not cause them to stop believing, but they're still disappointed. Why did you allow this to happen? Lord, why was it necessary for us to go through all of this? Why do you allow us to suffer so? We don't doubt you. We don't disbelieve you. But we're hurting, and we don't know why. Disappointed trust. Now, consider, secondly, with me, the perspective of the Jews, the perspective of the Jews on this apparent contradiction, the perspective of the sisters, is disappointed trust, now the perspective of the Jews. I think the Jews basically respond with doubt and unbelief. I think they respond with doubt and unbelief. Look at verse 35, Jesus wept. So, the Jews said, see how He loved Him, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What are the Jews doing here? They're actually highlighting this apparent contradiction. He clearly loved this man, but he didn't do anything. Either he didn't really love him, or he really doesn't possess the power to help people. These words from the Jews express doubt. Perhaps they doubt that Jesus ever healed the blind man in the first place. See, see they say, here is the proof that He never did heal that blind man back in chapter 9 after all. Or, or maybe they, they believe He did do that miracle, but perhaps they, they doubt the extent of His power. Maybe He can do small miracles like healing the blind, but He's not able to keep this man from dying. Perhaps the remark was meant to question Jesus' sincerity. You know, if He really loved Lazarus and He really had the power, what are all these tears about? Clearly, He just didn't love this man very much because He didn't even come. God's inactivity often becomes the occasion for the unbeliever to doubt. It can provide an occasion for people to doubt God's love. It can provide an occasion for people to doubt God's power. The fact is these Jews looked on Jesus' inaction as evidence that He is not really who He says He is. All that stuff He said in the last chapter about being the good shepherd and protecting His flock and laying down His life for the sheep, and look how He actually treats them when push comes to shove. Here are these people he allegedly loved, the sort of sheep of his pasture, and look, look how he treats them. He claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, and he can't even help his friends. And so, you have the sister's perspective, which is one of disappointed trust, and you have the Jews' perspective, which is one of doubt and unbelief, and now we have Jesus' perspective. Thirdly, Jesus' perspective. What was Jesus' perspective on this apparent contradiction in this situation as a whole? We might return now to the question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon. What is Christ's posture toward the sorrows of His people that His will ordains? Remember now, all of this is by Christ's own choosing. The naked fact we have to embrace is that this situation was created by Christ Himself. But what's His perspective on all of this? Notice three things about Jesus' perspective. First of all, Jesus was motivated by a resolution to display the glory of God. Jesus was motivated by a resolution to display the glory of God. Look with me at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All of this, from the very beginning, Jesus has in His mind this resolution to display the glory of God. This is all going to serve a larger purpose, and that is that the Son of God might be glorified. We don't know how in verse 4, but we do know that this is what Jesus is driving at. Now, you might remember the words of Jesus about the resurrection and about His power over the dead. Back in John chapter 5, I want to read John 5, verses 25 through 29, listen to what Jesus says there. "'Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man.'" Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What is Jesus claiming here? He's claiming there is coming a time when, when I, the Son of God, will lift up my voice and the dead will rise, they'll come out of the tombs, and those who have done good will rise to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil will rise to the resurrection of judgment. And you could imagine at that point His opponents there in John 5, perhaps just sort of rolling their eyes at this statement from Jesus. Like, like who do you think you are? You're just a man. You're telling me that you're going to lift up your voice in this great cosmic scene, and the dead are going to be raised. You just imagine them jeering at that, scoffing at that, rolling their eyes at that. Well, now we're in John 11, and a man has died, and Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. That's His statement, essentially stating again what He said back in John 5. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He states it again in this passage, but now He's going to demonstrate it with power in the face of all the skepticism and all the doubt and all the critics looking on, these Jews who doubt Him and do not believe Him. He creates a situation that provides an unmistakable and climactic display of His resurrection power. Jesus was motivated by a resolution to display the glory of God. And He has set up this situation where such a display would take place, and such a vindication of His words back in John 5 would take place. And of course, in so doing, we read that He was concerned that many would come to have faith in Him, that many would see the glory of God, and in seeing the glory of God, they would come to believe on Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So, John 11, verse 42, Jesus praying to His Father says, I knew that you always hear Me, But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me, that they might see the glory and believe on Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what He did, and they believed in Him. In the following chapter in John 12, we read this, verses 9 through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In other words, this great spectacle became the grounds for people to actually believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And they're coming and they're seeing the man Lazarus, who they had heard had died, but now he he lives and he's eating at table with Jesus. And the chief priests, in light of this unmistakable sign that Jesus really was who he said he was, It's this that ultimately leads them to arrest Jesus and to put Him to death. So, Jesus is not unaware of the apparent contradiction, but there's something so much larger that He is doing. This is about the display of the glory of God, and He has orchestrated these events for just such a display. That's the first thing to notice about Jesus' perspective. But secondly, notice this. Jesus was motivated by love for His people. Jesus was motivated by love for His people. This is so important. Look with me at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. You see that in verse 6, that word, So, basically means, therefore, because He loved them. Therefore, He didn't do anything, which means behind this apparent inactivity, Jesus' unwillingness to come up and deliver Lazarus and the sisters from this suffering and sorrow, behind His apparent inactivity was a loving heart. It's not that His love and His inactivity coexisted together. It's not that they were disconnected realities or different sort of tracks running parallel to each other. They are understood to be integrally related. It is because He loved them that He didn't respond. The idea is that this is the course, the route that love chose for Martha and Mary and for Lazarus. He loved them so He did not go up. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why is this the course that love chose for Martha and Mary and Lazarus? Well, it could be, one of the reasons could be, that Jesus was intent on using this sorrowful occasion to increase their faith. Looking again at verse 23 and following, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. This situation, this sorrowful situation brought on by Jesus' inactivity provides the context for the most profound expression of faith from Martha. You will not find a more profound expression of faith in this gospel. But why does this statement issue forth from Martha's heart and her lips. One reason is because Jesus created by His own will a situation in which Martha's faith would be tried, it would be pressed, it would be squeezed, and it would be tested, and it would grow. See, Jesus wants Martha to go beyond Orthodox Judaism. All the Jews believed that there would be this resurrection at the last day, of course, except for the Sadducees, but all the Jews believe in this resurrection at the last day. Well, Jesus wants her to go beyond that. It's not just that there will one day be a resurrection. Every Jew believed that. He wants her to embrace Him as the resurrection and the life. The Lord Jesus, in His love for Martha, wanted to bring her to a fuller maturity of faith in Himself. And what's more than that, Jesus wanted to use this situation this painful situation, to make a fuller disclosure of Himself and His glory to her. He wants to reveal to Martha more about Himself, more about His heart. Jesus is leveraging this situation for Martha's faith and Martha's intimacy and knowledge of God through Christ. He's after a richer, fuller, deeper disclosure of Himself for Martha. And in And the face of that revelation, that disclosure, her heart running out to Him and embracing Him. It, of course, would have been wonderful if Jesus had actually come when He was called and had healed Lazarus. It would have been nice. It would have been yet another miraculous display. Look, here's Jesus doing once again what He's been doing all this time healing people and doing miraculous things. It would have been good if Jesus had forestalled the pain and the sorrow and the agony that these women went through watching their brother die. But He didn't do that. Instead, He created a situation by His own will whereby these women would go through immense internal anguish and sorrow of heart. He created a situation in which they would feel real disappointment by their Lord, and He does this. Listen, ultimately so that He might give to them a fuller, richer, and more wonderful disclosure of Himself, of His heart, and of His power. He loved them, and He wanted them to know Him more fully, and He wanted their faith to grow. And for that reason, He doesn't go up to help them. He by His inactivity invites great pain into their lives, but we must appreciate this. It is that very pain, it is that very circumstance that produces this new and wonderful disclosure of the Lord's heart to them and produces a more mature faith in these women. Jesus was moved by love for them. He wanted their faith to grow, and he wanted to reveal something of himself and his heart for them. Now, the third thing we'll say about Jesus' perspective on this situation, third thing we can say about his perspective And that is that Jesus was deeply affected by the sorrows which His will caused. Jesus Himself was deeply affected by the sorrows which His will caused. Remember, Christ's actions and inactions were the cause of these sorrows. His will created this situation. Well, how does He respond to them? We've been in a class on the doctrine of God in the equip class hour, the hour that meets before our worship service. We've been talking about the attributes of God and we've seen that God is, of course, transcendent, He's eternal, He is immutable, He is in some sense impassable. That is to say, He's not ruled by passions in the ways that His creatures are. It's a glorious contemplation of God. But it's easy to think the context of those contemplations of who God is and His eternal being. We can picture God as being somewhat abstract and remote. We can think of Him as being unmoved by our feelings and our circumstances. The Bible doesn't present Him that way, the Bible presents God as having emotions, the Bible presents God as singing with joy over His people, and being jealous for them, and having compassion for them, and delighting in them. But we can say even more than this. The fact is, the eternal Son of God came into the world. The preexistent Word who was with God and who was God, the preexistent Word became flesh, and He was the Father's representative. He was the image of the invisible God. And He will say later on in this gospel to Philip, I believe in John uh, 14, he says, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I've said this probably a dozen times already in this series, but I'll say it again. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus in this passage, in His response to the sorrows of His people that His will has created, what do we see? We see the Son of God weeps with His people. We don't see a remote, stoic, impassive, and unfeeling Savior. We see one who is touched, touched with the feeling of our infirmities. John 11 verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said, Am Lord, come and see. And then you have that shortest of verses in all the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Again, in verse 38, when Jesus comes to the tomb, we read, he was deeply moved again. What is Jesus like when faced with the sorrows of His people that were brought about by His own will, well, He's not remote and unmoved. The Son of God cries. It's not an overstatement. The Son of God cries. He weeps. He's deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. He enters into their agony and their pain and deeply sympathizes with them Now, it's interesting. He doesn't weep because He doesn't know how this is all going to pan out. Of course, Martha and Mary don't know how this is going to pan out. Jesus knows. He's created this situation. He knows this is all going to culminate in the uh, glorious display of the glory of the Son of God. He, He doesn't weep from the same vantage point as Martha and Mary. He doesn't weep because He fears Lazarus is going to remain dead and He's never going to see Him again. Jesus is not like Martha and Mary. No, Jesus weeps from the vantage point of being the sovereign Lord of the universe. He weeps from the vantage point of being the eternal Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. He weeps from the vantage point of being the only begotten Son sent from the Father. He weeps from the vantage point of being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But what we need to appreciate is this, He does weep even from that vantage point of knowing the beginning from the end, ordaining the beginning from the end. Even from that perspective, He is not unmoved. He is not unsympathetic. Even from that posture, He enters into the sorrows of His people. Jesus, the Son of God, is deeply affected by the suffering that His will creates, which is an astounding idea. He is moved by the sorrows of His people, even in situations which His will ordains. This is Jesus' perspective. He was motivated by resolution to display the glory of God. He was motivated by love for His people. And He was deeply affected by the sorrows which His will caused. My time is quickly leaving, and so... I'd like to move to application, and probably these points of application are already obvious to you, but I'll state them anyway, briefly. Three points of application. Number one, we must learn to trust the wisdom and the timing of God. We must learn to trust the wisdom and the timing of God. God always has a plan for what He does, and He always has a plan for what He doesn't do. What a comfort that ought to be to us. Everything he does is deliberate, and everything he doesn't do is deliberate. For four days, these women had to face this apparent inactivity, and it must have broken their hearts. It must have broken their hearts. Where was Jesus? Why didn't he come? But imagine the change of perspective five days after Lazarus died, he's now been raised, and he's sitting at table with Jesus and the other disciples, and Martha and Mary are there. Five days after this has happened, I assure you, those sisters would never have wanted it to be otherwise when they saw the climactic deliverance and the purposes of Jesus in all of this, and Jesus was kind enough in this situation to bring about this dramatic uh, answer To the situation and to display all of His purposes and reasons for this before Martha and Mary. Now listen, for some people, for some Christians, it's much longer than four days. And for some people, they are not necessarily shown the dramatic answer so quickly and so manifestly, and sometimes they're never even given an answer. The Lord doesn't promise to us that He's going to show us everything He's doing in in the sorrows and sufferings and trials that come into our lives. And sometimes He might be doing all these different things, and He might just show you one small glimpse of what He's doing. I've heard a popular preacher say that, that at any given time in your life, God is doing 10,000 different things, and He may only show you one of them. Well, this passage, brothers and sisters, is for our instruction Some of you are greatly confused and hurt by God's apparent inactivity in your life and your circumstance. What does that mean for you now? Well, this, this, this is the day of faith. You have to say, God is doing things I cannot see or know, but He wants me to believe in Him. He wants me to trust in Him. I have to look to Him. This is the day of faith. This is the day of waiting on the Lord and trusting in Him for His grace I love this quote from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. I return to it again and again and again. Burroughs says this, O Christian, if you have faith in the time of suffering, think thus, this is the time that God calls for the exercise of faith. And what can you do by your faith? I can do this. I can in all states cast my care upon God, cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. Therefore, when reason can go no higher, when all I see is this apparent contradiction, when faith can go no higher, let faith get on the shoulders of reason and say, I see land, though reason cannot see it. I see good that will come out of all this evil. Exercise faith by often resigning yourself to God, by giving yourself up to God and His ways. The more you, in a believing way, surrender up yourself to God, the more quiet and peace you will have. Friends, we must learn to trust the wisdom and timing of God. Second line of application, we must learn to look for Christ in our sorrows seems to me that so many people waste their suffering. They just sort of waste it. They just sort of feel bad, and they cry, and they struggle, and and they just suffer. And it seems that they have no expectation that Christ actually uses suffering to mature our faith and to reveal something to us about His heart. They just sort of grit their teeth and bear it like, all right, I'm suffering. I just got to get through this. No, 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 no. The Lord is doing something in your suffering. The Lord is trying to bring about a maturation of your faith. The Lord is trying to disclose something of His heart to you that you can learn about Him and know about Him that you might enter into greater levels of intimacy and experience with the living God through His Son. You see, Christ is actually using suffering to further grace in our lives. So when we are in sorrow and in grief, we need to look for Christ. What is He teaching me? What does He want me to see? I need to go to Him. I need to run out to Him. I need to groan to Him. I need to ask my questions to Him. And I need to hear His answer and learn everything I can. I need to get every bit of fruit I can out of this season of trial and hardship and sorrow. My friend, don't just suffer and be sad. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Don't just have the miscarriage and be sad. Cry out to the Lord, well, why did this happen? Go to His Word, let Him speak to you, Lord, why why did You let me lose my job? I needed that job, i got all these problems, what do I do? Go to the Lord hear what He has to say to you. See what ways He has for you to grow in your faith. We must learn to look for Christ in our sorrows, thirdly and finally, and we'll end here. We must draw comfort from Christ's disposition when His will causes us grief. We must draw comfort from Christ's disposition when His will causes us grief. The truth is, the Lord Jesus loves us and is sympathetic with us. Christ is altogether sympathetic to the sorrows that His will causes you. And that doesn't explain everything, doesn't explain everything, but it makes a definitive statement about Christ and His heart for us. He wept with Mary and Martha. He was deeply moved in His inner being We have a high priest, as the old King James says, who is who's touched. He's touched. He can feel. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, of our weaknesses. And this passage teaches us that it actually grieves the Lord to see his people suffer. And it grieves him in a way that is consistent with his changeless eternal being. And that means when we go to Christ, we can be certain of being sympathetically received. When other people are in suffering and sorrow, we should turn them to such a Savior. The truth is we have somebody to turn to who will receive us and love us and sympathize with us, even weep with us. And you who are outside of Christ, you suffer, you go through trial, you go through hardship. The truth is you have no one to turn to. You have no one to turn to who can enter into your sorrow. But if you actually come to Christ and believe on Him and embrace Him as your Savior, as your Lord, and if you follow Him in repentance and faith, this is how He treats His own. He's a sympathetic Savior. He loves His people. He loves His people. And the sorrows of your life will not be purposeless and meaningless if you are in Christ. He will use those sufferings and those sorrows to actually draw you closer to Himself in the midst of all that hardship and sorrow he will sympathize with you let us pray together our father in heaven through the writings of the apostle john and his record of the life of jesus we know The Lord himself has said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And we believe what we have seen of the Lord Jesus in this passage is emblematic of your heart toward us. We thank you that you are not cold. You are not remote and removed and unfeeling, but that you love us and through Jesus you sympathize with us. You don't abandon us in our sorrows and in our trials. We thank You that that is so. May the truth of that in some sort of unspeakable way sink into our hearts even now with power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.